Deep under the arid brush and sand of the Arizona horizon, a vein of silver runs through the rock like blood under the skin of a corpse. When the mine first opened in the hills near the San Pedro River, thousands crossed the desert for the promise of riches and freedom that glimmered in the subterranean dark. But the lawless desert wilderness wasn't meant to sustain life. The boomtowns were abandoned as quickly as they sprung up. Only the strongest survived. The fearless wanderers with skin leathered by the sun. The outlaws with quick fingers grasping for a gun. They lived so hard, they refused to die, even when their hearts stopped beating. They still linger on, too restless to rest, even a century after the last saloon door was boarded up. They don't take kindly to newcomers who trespass into their old haunts. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every other Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Birdcage Theater in Tombstone, Arizona, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough Haunted Places, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. During the eight years the Birdcage Theater was open, from 1881 to 1889, 26 people were killed inside its walls, but none of them ever left. Visitors who tour the Birdcage today can still hear voices singing, smell cigar smoke and whiskey, and see figures in 19th century clothes appearing and disappearing into thin air. In 1877, a prospector came to the San Pedro River Valley to search for silver. The soldiers at the nearby army fort told him, the only stone you'll find out there will be your own tombstone. But he didn't turn and go home. After months of searching, he finally struck silver. He registered a mining settlement and named it Tombstone. Less than two years after the first mine opened, Tombstone had boomed from a small camp of shacks and tents into a town of over 7,000 people. The dusty streets were lined with hastily erected saloons, and restaurants, and theaters for the entertainment of the miners and their families. Opportunity awaited any business people who dared to brave the desert heat. The Birdcage Theater was meant to be a respectable establishment. When vaudeville performers Bill and Lottie Hutchinson moved to Tombstone from San Francisco in 1881, they had lofty dreams of bringing high-class, family-friendly entertainment to the primitive wastelands of Arizona. Their main attraction was a weekly ladies' night. Respectable women of the town got free entry to see touring vaudeville shows from California. But it soon became apparent Tombstone didn't have the clientele to support their cosmopolitan endeavors. 
they would have to give the miners and cowboys what they wanted. A gambling house and a brothel. The birdcage soon became a hot spot for drinking, gambling, and all kind of live entertainment. It was open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It soon had a reputation as one of the liveliest saloons in the West. The New York Times called it the wildest, wickedest night spot between Basin Street and the Barbary Coast. Right inside the front doors, an oil painting of a curvy dancer in an exotic costume hangs above the long wooden bar. Her portrait is adorned with six bullet holes and a knife slash. It's a fitting welcome sign for the notorious theater. In the eight years the birdcage was open, 148 bullet holes pierced through its walls. Most of the casualties were outlaw cowboys who couldn't keep their mouths shut and their guns holstered. But one of the most gruesome murders at the birdcage happened at the hands of a petite golden-haired sex worker who went by the name of Gold Dollar. No one who saw Gold Dollar ever had to ask how she got her nickname. She was maybe five feet tall, with a halo of yellow hair around her little round face. Sure, she worked in a brothel, but that didn't mean there wasn't a special man in her life. Working at the birdcage, she caught eyes upon a gambler by the name of Billy Milgreen. Billy loved the drink and loved the women, but so did every man Gold Dollar had been with. She didn't take it as anything unusual, so she worked her charm on him for free. By the mid-1880s, Gold Dollar and Billy moved in together. It was nice to have someone in her corner. Billy sat in the front row for her performance every night, even though she performed the same dance every night. When she was working off stage, Gold Dollar would check on Billy, looking into the bar room where he'd be drinking or gambling. She'd give him a wink, and he'd wink right back. She was finally happy. Of course, Billy's eye wandered, but after a few altercations with Gold Dollar, the other ladies learned it was in their best interest to stay away from him. The girl wasn't as innocent as she looked. Everyone in Tombstone knew not to get between Gold Dollar and her man. Until a flirtatious young vixen named Margarita moved to town from Mexico. The first time Margarita saw Billy, she was taken with him. His bright, reckless smile, his naive eyes. She told some of her fellow dancers she'd set her sights on Billy Milgreen. They warned her, stay away, stay far away. But this only made Margarita curious. Gold Dollar seemed so innocent. What could a tiny, sweet-looking girl possibly do to her? Margarita wasn't afraid of anything. And she certainly wasn't afraid of a little blonde girl like Gold Dollar. And Margarita was the kind of girl who went after what she wanted. <laughs> One night, Gold Dollar glanced into the barroom to give Billy a wink. But he wasn't looking in her direction. Billy sat at the table all right, but Margarita sat in his lap. Gold Dollar stared for a long minute. Billy was too drunk and distracted to even notice her. 
His eyes and his hands were all over Margarita. Billy may not have noticed Gold Dollar, but Margarita knew. Even with her back turned, she could feel Gold Dollar staring. She turned her head just far enough to smirk at Gold Dollar from the corner of her eye. Gold Dollar disappeared around the corner and came back a few minutes later with a double-edged stiletto knife in her hand. No one noticed her darting out. No one noticed her returning, lingering in the doorway with a double-edged stiletto knife tucked into her fist. No one noticed until she was storming across the bar with bloodlust in her eyes. She thrust the knife into Margarita's chest. It cracked right through her ribs. Blood poured out all over Margarita's cream-colored dress, all over the floor, all over Billy. Billy sat there helpless. There was nothing he could do to stop his lover's rage. Gold Dollar sawed deeper and deeper until she could reach in and feel Margarita's heart. She ripped it out and squeezed it in her fingers until it stopped beating. The sheriff rushed in. Panicked, Gold Dollar threw Margarita's heart on the floor and ran out the back door, blood dripping from her hands. Billy saw the last drops of blood beat out of Margarita's dead heart and knew he'd done wrong. As she fled the theater, Gold Dollar hid the knife so well she was sure no one would ever find it. Soon after, the sheriff apprehended Gold Dollar, brought her to the county jail. However, the authorities couldn't find a weapon. The knife wasn't anywhere, inside or around the theater. And with no weapon found, Gold Dollar couldn't be charged with murder. So as far as the authorities knew, the stiletto knife had vanished into thin air. Freed, Gold Dollar went back to Billy, who was so shaken he would never look at another woman again. She went back to her old job, too. But every night working at the birdcage, she felt something looming over her, watching her. The guilt ate away at her. She had a terrible feeling that Margarita was still there, planning her revenge. The other girls told her she was imagining it, but secretly, they all felt the same presence. They knew Margarita wouldn't be at rest until Gold Dollar was punished. After a few weeks, Gold Dollar could no longer stand to be there. She left, hoping to escape the agony. But the figure of the woman remained at the birdcage, wandering the barroom in vain. Even years after that fateful night, a woman's apparition wandered near that spot where her heart's blood stained the floor. She was always looking for something. 101 years later, in 1982, a museum employee cleaned up the birdcage. Walking out the back door, he found a double-edged stiletto knife laying right outside. He showed it to his supervisors. They showed it to a historian. The historian examined the weapon and confirmed it was made in the late 1800s. Was this the blade that killed Margarita? Where did it go on the night of the murder? And how did it resurface a century later? 
Did Margarita's ghost spend all that time searching for the weapon, unable to rest until it was found? After the knife was found, her ghost was never seen again. She finally left the birdcage to rest in peace. But not everyone who died at the birdcage theater was so lucky. Some of the spirits that remain have given up on peace and justice. All they want now is vengeance. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, the story continues. Past the bullet-riddled bar, another door opens up into the theater. Every night when the curtain came up, cowboys and revelers huddled in the rows of wooden benches. Eyes turned to the stage. Women in short skirts and technicolor feathers danced, sang heartfelt ballads, and performed daring acrobatic stunts. Raucous roars and music mingled with the laughter and applause from the crowd. The men packed in so close, there wasn't room to breathe. Gaslights lining the front of the stage caught the smoke and hung it like a curtain. The stage manager, clad in black striped pants and a visor, watched from the wings. He had the show running like clockwork. Curtains up, costumes ready, music perfectly timed. It was too dark backstage to read the notes on his clipboard, but he already knew it all by heart. He had been doing this job every night for years. But tonight, there was a new act. They'd spend weeks drilling tiny holes in the ceiling, the exact size to fit clamps attached to the bottom of the acrobat's shoes. The girls would squeeze their feet into the holes and walk along the ceiling upside down. They called it the human fly. The young acrobat waited for her turn backstage. Nothing could possibly go wrong, she told herself. She had rehearsed all week. She had double-checked her shoes to make sure they were fastened correctly. The stage manager tapped her on the arm. It was time to go. She stepped into the stage lights, waved to the crowd, and climbed up the wall. You could barely hear the music over all the hoots and the hollers. She clamped her feet into the first holes in the ceiling and let go of the ladder. The room went silent. She moved her feet slowly, one step at a time. But the bright lights were blinding her and the blood was rushing to her head. She slipped her shoe into the next hole. She thought she heard it click into place, but couldn't be sure. If she moved her other foot, there was a chance she might fall. So she stopped, dangling in midair, too terrified to move. But there was no time to wait. The audience was getting restless. She took a deep breath, lifted one foot, and fell to the ground. Her skull cracked open. Blood splattered all over the miner's dusty work boots. The stage manager rushed over to save her, but it was too late. That was the end of her life, but not the end of her stage career. 
Her ghost is still seen hanging high above the wooden benches, feet sliding along the ceiling until she falls and disappears, always in the same spot in the middle of the room. More than a century later, she still hasn't mastered her act. Botched stunts weren't the only danger that the performers faced. Gunfights were so common that just two months after moving to town, a Tombstone local wrote in his journal that the shootings were of such frequent occurrence that their novelty has ceased. Rival gangs would sit on opposite sides of the room, taunting each other over the piano music throughout the cabaret performances. Amid this, the stage manager frantically made sure the show went on, that the girls got on stage and the piano played in time, and of course, that the lights didn't get shot out. In the haze of cigar smoke and whiskey breath, pulling a pistol is as easy as shaking hands. One wrong word, or one sideways glance, and fingers start itching for triggers, because the night wasn't over until bullets started flying. The dancers hit the floor. Bullets ricocheted off the walls. The stage lights shattered, and the room went dark. It was quiet for a moment as the gun smoke settled. No one moved a muscle, until the stage manager came in with a lantern to look over the damage. Usually everyone was fine. Scrapes and minor wounds, but nothing fatal. But every once in a while, he would step in a pool of warm liquid and bend down to see the blood-soaked body of a cowboy, or a dancer, or an innocent bystander. Some of the gunslingers who met their fates at the birdcage are still seen there, drinking and gambling the same as they did when their hearts were beating. They may not have guns, but they're still itching for a fight. Walk into the room, and the apparitions will turn their heads and stare you down. If you make one wrong move, you feel a chill on the back of your neck, or a force knocking you down, or an invisible hand scraping against your skin. There's no record of what happened to the stage manager, but he's still seen pacing across the stage with his clipboard. Perhaps he was killed in the crossfire of one of these gunfights. And now, he's trapped here forever, watching over his stage, keeping an eye on the patrons who always disrupted his shows. If you catch him staring at you as you walk through the theater, you'd better be on your best behavior. After a hundred years of rowdy customers, he's starting to lose his temper. He sends chills down the spine of anyone who steps too loudly through the rows of benches. Along the edges of the Birdcage Theater, 14 private boxes jut out from the walls, closed off with blood-red drapes. Showgirls on the floor flirted with the dirt-caked miners, plying them with glass after glass of whiskey until they agreed to join them in the boxes for some private entertainment. The boxes were decorated in shabby red and black, just big enough for a small bed and a table with a gas lamp. It wasn't the most luxurious place, but in the hard scrabble town of Tombstone, the men didn't mind, and the women needed to make a living. One of the regulars was Deputy Sheriff Wyatt Earp, 
now famous for his role in the gunfight at the OK Corral. He came to the birdcage so often that he had a reserved box of his own. Long after Wyatt's death, the museum keepers at the birdcage decided to honor him with a life-size statue placed in his old balcony box. They set up the statue, and for a finishing touch, they placed a 10-gallon hat on the famed cowboy's head. The next morning, the manager was setting up for tours when he saw something odd. The statue's hat rested on the floor in the middle of the theater, clear across the room from Wyatt's balcony box. It was a hot day in Arizona, so the manager figured a fan had just blown it off. He replaced the hat and went about his day, and he made sure to tell his employees not to let the fans run overnight. But the next morning, the hat was in the exact same spot. The manager asked who was leaving the windows open, but the employees had no explanation. No one had been inside since the previous night. There were no open windows, no fans running to blow the hat off. The next morning, the hat was in the center of the theater again. Now this was getting annoying. The employee in charge of shutting the windows placed the hat back on Wyatt's head. He stared straight into the statue's lifeless, painted eyes, hoping that it wouldn't happen again. But the next morning, they found the hat on the same spot on the floor. And every morning after, the statue's hat was found in the ground in the very center of the theater. It went on that way for six months. They checked the windows and fans, made sure the doors were locked, even interrogated the janitors who closed up at night. But no one knew what was happening. One morning, the first worker who came into the theater found the heavy statue turned completely backwards facing away from the stage. The employees all knew something was off. Whenever they stood too close to the statue, it felt like someone or something was watching them, trying to send a message. But they couldn't figure out what the message was. They kept giving tours and going about business as usual, with the added task of adjusting the sheriff's hat every morning. Until one day, when the tour guide was interrupted. Uh, that Wyatt Earp statue was in the wrong box. The interrupter was a historian. He explained that instead of in his own balcony box, the Earp statue resided in the box that belonged to his sworn enemies, the Clanton brothers. It seems silly, but maybe that was the problem. The employees begrudgingly pushed Wyatt's statue over to the correct box. The next morning, they walked in, expecting to find the hat on the floor as usual, but it was still on the statue's head where it belonged. Days and weeks went by, and the hat was never found on the floor again. The ominous presence around the statue was gone too. It seemed that Wyatt's spirit was finally at peace. The main stage was the most popular spot for the average miners, but for the real adventurers, the fun didn't stop in there. They ventured down into the basement, the site of the Birdcage Theater's most notorious hauntings. An old staircase behind the stage descends into a dusty, smoky cellar. 
This is where the theater's most infamous happenings took place. It's said that the longest poker game in the West was held here. Gamblers gathered here nonstop for eight years, five months, and three days. Every legendary gambler, from Doc Holliday to Bat Masterson, stopped by to see how far they could push their luck. Any time, night or day, there would be men crowded around the small table, betting everything they own for a chance to strike it rich. As much as $10 million changed hands during the eight-year game, and the house took 10%. Most of the miners didn't have big money, but they played every hand as if it were a matter of life and death. Oftentimes, it was. Whiskey-fueled games of poker and faro were prone to get out of hand. Outlaw cowboys came in with fists full of stolen money. They would do anything to double their profits. Cheat, steal, or kill. They played with all sorts of tricks. Marked cards, stacked decks, and if anyone tried to call them out, they drew their fists or their pistols. The bullets lodged in the basement walls are proof that the games could turn deadly. Go into the basement today, you might feel a suffocating presence hanging in the air. The spirits of all those who lost their games, their money, and their lives in this room. It still smells of cigars and whiskey, even though no smoking or drinking has been allowed in the building for over 100 years, you can still hear cards shuffling and dice rolling, as if the games never ended. Past the gambling room, there's a small hallway leading to a row of bedrooms. Big spenders could rent a room and a woman for $40 a night. These rooms were a bit more luxurious than the theater boxes, decorated with full-size beds, second-rate paintings, and tattered red drapes. Scattered clothes still lay in piles around the faded carpets. Nearly every woman who performed at the birdcage found herself working in these bedrooms sooner or later. Without a husband, the only way women could support themselves in a mining town like this was by turning to sex work. Some were strong enough to paint their faces and do their jobs until they found a man to support them. Others weren't so lucky. Some of the women who worked at the birdcage died of pneumonia in the cold, dank apartments they shared next door to the theater. The living conditions were difficult everywhere in town. But even the mining camps were cozy compared to what these women had to endure. Others died of liver failure from years of drinking to numb their sorrows. Some even killed themselves out of hopelessness, sometimes in the theater itself. Others found their way out, only to realize that things were worse outside the controlled chaos of the saloon. One dancer named Molly Williams placed her faith in a hard-drinking gambler known as Buckskin Frank Leslie. Buckskin Frank Leslie was bad news. He always had a gun in his hand and a sheriff on his tail. Most recently, his first wife divorced him. She claimed he mistreated her, and we believe her. Unfortunately, Molly Williams didn't. 
Buckskin Frank was taken with Molly from the moment he saw her dancing at the birdcage. Molly knew Frank had a bad reputation, but he promised he would change. She placed her faith in his promises of a quiet life, far away from the degradation that she faced at the theater. They would live on a peaceful little ranch just outside of Tombstone, far away from the hard days and nights she faced at the theater. She didn't love him, but she loved the idea of escaping her life at the birdcage. She had nothing to lose. Soon, the couple was married. The ranch was even quieter than Molly had imagined. Nothing but the cattle and the mountains, miles away from the city. Far enough away that no one can hear you scream. Frank didn't change. He was constantly drunk, and his temper could snap at any moment. It was hell when he was home, and when he was gone. Molly was all alone in the silence. She wasn't allowed to invite friends over, and she wasn't allowed to go into town either. She spent all day locked inside the ranch house with no company, except Frank. On the quiet nights, there was nothing to hear but the crickets and the cows. She dreamed of going back to the birdcage. At least she wasn't alone there. After a few years, Frank hired a cattleman to help around the ranch, a young man called Six Shooter Jim. Frank laid down the rules the moment Jim stepped foot in the door. Jim and Molly were not allowed to speak to each other. He didn't trust another man spending time with his wife. But one night, when Frank was away, Molly stepped outside to find Jim sitting on the porch. He was calmer than Frank ever was. Kinder, too. They sat and talked for a while. Molly had almost forgotten what it was like to have a conversation with someone other than Frank. But then Frank came home, drunk as usual. He could see Molly and Jim sitting on the porch from half a mile away. And that's when he finally snapped. He got off his horse, stomped up to the house, and shot both of them point blank. Molly bled out right there on her own porch, never to see her old friends at the birdcage again. A woman in an old-fashioned dress is still seen wandering in and out of the bedrooms in the birdcage basement, then turning down the hall and fading into thin air. Could it be Molly? returned to her old home at the birdcage? Or perhaps one of the other women who died in despair, never to escape their misery? Another common sighting in the basement is a man wandering the halls, as if he's looking for something, or someone. The local legend says his wife left him and went to work at the birdcage, where she could have her independence. He came back to look for her, but she locked herself in one of the bedrooms. She didn't want to hear his apologies. His hollow-eyed apparition is still searching for her, peering into each room, begging for her to come home. One night after closing time, two of the workers who kept up the museum in the now-closed theater turned off the sound system for the night and went down into the basement to clean. As soon as they entered the first bedroom, a chill came over them. A menacing male voice came over the sound system and said something they couldn't quite make out. 
Then the speakers began blaring the old love song, Red River Valley. The employees knew the theater was supposed to be haunted, but they didn't want to admit it might be a ghost. They figured someone had broken in and taken control of the sound system as a prank. They ran upstairs and looked around, but there was no one there. The doors were still locked, and there was no sign of a break-in. There was only a slight chill in the air and an indescribable dark presence hanging over that bedroom. They never did figure out who turned the music on that night. Could it have been that man still searching for his wife, hoping a favorite love song would turn her heart around? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to Haunted Places. Tombstone's glory days couldn't last forever. In the mid-1880s, the supply of silver ore began to dry up, and the town's residents drifted on to find riches elsewhere. The final blow came in 1886. The town's main water pipe burst, and water completely flooded the mines. The few miners who still remained were laid off. Without any customers to support them, the theaters, saloons, and restaurants had to close down too. Within a few years, the thriving boomtown had turned into a ghost town. The birdcage finally closed its doors in 1889. The owners left all the furniture and fixtures exactly as they were even the rumpled bedsheets and dirty glasses. The building sat abandoned, untouched, sealed off like a time capsule. No one paid any mind to the boarded-up old theater until 1921, when a school was built across the street for a few stubborn families who still remained in the decaying town. Every morning and afternoon, children passed the birdcage on their way to school, Soon after the school opens, the children report something strange. Walking to school, they smelled cigar smoke wafting from the old birdcage. Curious, they stop and peer into the dusty windows. Music and laughter, so loud and clear, it had to be real. Was that... No, no, it couldn't be. Oh, shut up, Jimmy, there's no way. Oh no, you're right. There's a shadow moving inside. It must be the big kids. But the door is locked. The windows are sealed with wooden boards. How could anyone get inside? And why is the music so... old? There couldn't be anyone in there. Look again. The shadows are gone. The music had stopped. Something was off. It felt like whoever or whatever, was in the building didn't want them peering in. Better tell the teachers. Later, the police came to investigate the building. There must have been a break-in. They also find the doors still boarded and locked. It must be just the youngsters' overactive imaginations. But every week, another student runs into the classroom in wide-eyed terror screaming to the teachers that someone was inside the old birdcage. And every time, when the adults look at the building, it's silent and still inside. 
Eventually, all the kids in town know to pass by on the other side of the street. Whatever's happening inside the birdcage, they didn't want to be anywhere near it. The building remains, untouched by the living and ruled by the dead. In 1934, the birdcage was finally reopened as a tourist attraction and museum. When the new owners opened the doors, they found everything exactly as it had been left more than four decades earlier. It was all perfectly preserved, as if the theater had only closed the day before. Even the old coin-operated jukebox still worked. And it felt as if the cowboys and saloon girls were still there, watching from the corners. The museum owners kept everything the way it was. It was amazing to find a place like this, a treasure trove full of authentic old relics. Sure, there were the local legends that the place was haunted, but those are just legends. Who really believes in ghosts? Perhaps they should have listened to the locals. It didn't take long for the employees at the museum to notice strange things happening. One night, a janitor found a burned match on the floor of the basement. It wasn't one of the neat, factory-made matches you'd buy today. It looked rougher, handmade, too old to have been dropped there by one of the tourists. They had the match examined by an antiquarian, who confirmed that the match was manufactured in the 1880s. Another night, the museum owner found a $100 poker chip on the gambling table. It looked like an antique, but it was a different type from the other chips that were left behind when the theater closed. No one at the museum had seen it before, and no one had any idea where it could have come from. The owner locked the poker chip in a safe and waited for an expert to arrive to take a look at it. But when the owner opened the safe again, the chip was gone. He was furious. Who could have taken it? No one else had the combination to that safe. The historian left, disappointed. And then, a few hours later, the owner unlocked the drawer of his desk. Inside, right at the front of the locked drawer, he found the poker chip. A murder weapon, a match, a poker chip. The spirits of the birdcage have a knack for conjuring up old objects out of thin air. But why did they do it? Perhaps they just want to prove their power to the modern-day city dwellers who visit their eternal home. Or maybe they're asserting themselves to the other spirits that are trespassing into their resting place. Since it was reopened as a museum, the owners of the birdcage have brought in additional historic relics that might carry more ghosts with them. One such, the Black Mariah. A horse-drawn hearse painted black and trimmed with real gold and silver. It carried almost every resident of Tombstone to their final resting place at the Boothill graveyard. Children who died of tragic illnesses, hopeless women who took their own lives, and gunslingers who died by violence. Tourists report seeing and feeling more unexplained activity near the Black Mariah than anywhere else in Tombstone. Visitors who walk past the Black Mariah feel a chill in the back of their necks, as if the death hanging over the carriage is draining all the life from the room. The restless spirits of the dead may still be trapped inside the hearse, 
reliving the anguish of their tragic deaths every single night. Then there's the pool table Morgan Earp died on. One night, the legendary lawman was playing pool at the Campbell and Hatch billiard parlor down the street from the birdcage when a rifle shot through the window and pierced through his back. His brothers rushed to his side, but he was already bleeding out. With his dying breath, Morgan whispered into his brother's ear, this is the last game of pool I'll ever play. The Campbell and Hatch billiard parlor burned down in 1882, but the blood-stained pool table was salvaged and taken to the birdcage. Since then, countless visitors have seen Morgan's ghost lingering around the table. Anyone who brings a pool cue near the table feels an angry force pushing them back. Even after death, Morgan has kept his promise. He won't play another game of pool, and his spirit doesn't take kindly to those who challenge him. Some of the spirits of the birdcage are so powerful, they can move in and out of the building. When tourism started to draw residents back to Tombstone, the rows of apartments beside the theater were renovated and rented out. Richard, a carpenter, moved into one of these apartments. A skeptic. He never believed his home could be haunted. He joked about it to his friends. There's no such things as ghosts, he said. And if there is, he could fight them off any day. Until one night, Richard woke up to find five cowboys hovering over the foot of his bed, staring right at him. He sat up, rubbed his eyes. He thought he was hallucinating or still dreaming. 30 seconds of staring later, the cowboys were still there, hovering, motionless. They didn't disappear. They just kept looming over him, perfectly still and silent. What if this wasn't a dream? Richard was too terrified to move. He'd heard all the stories about the cowboys that died at the birdcage. If they were that dangerous in life, he didn't want to know how violent they would be in death. He slowly reached out and felt around on the nightstand for a flashlight. He clicked it on and pointed it at the apparitions. They stared at him for a second more, not scared of his flashlight, but a bit annoyed. Their message was clear. They didn't want Richard in their home. One by one, they turned, walked to the back of the room, and disappeared into the wall. Richard took that night as a warning to watch his back. He never joked about hauntings again. The residents of Tombstone lived so intensely that it left an imprint on the town forever. The resilience of their spirits is a reminder of how hard life used to be and how tough you had to be to survive it. If you find yourself face to face with any of the ghosts that linger in the birdcage theater, you'd better be careful. They know how to have a good time. But if you make one wrong move, you could end up joining them in the afterlife. The smartest thing you can do is run. 
Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every other Thursday. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Kate Gallagher. I'm Greg Polson.